All right. Good afternoon. Um, I want to welcome everybody to our 41st annual Caner Lecture. So um, I'm, I'm so pleased to first introduce you all to Marjorie Long. Marjorie, I don't know if you want to wave to everybody. Um, she is um, David Caner's widow, and um, he is the person um, who we are um, remembering today um, for the Caner uh, Memorial Lecture. So thank you, Marjorie, for joining us. Um, so. This lectureship was established 41 years ago in um, memory of David Kaner. Um, he is a graduate of the University of Michigan and after that went to Wayne State for medical school. And in 1972 began his surgical internship here at what was previously known as Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital. And unfortunately, um, during that intern year, he um, got sick with chronic myelogenous leukemia. And despite a very valiant fight with that, um, died um, about 10 months after diagnosis. And Dartmouth Medical School established this lectureship in his honor. And for 41 years now, we've had the honor of bringing in just real luminaries in surgical oncology and medical oncology to share knowledge with us um, in memory of David Kaner. So um, we are so pleased today to have Dr. Kelly McMasters join us as the Kaner lecturer. Um, I, before I do the more formal introduction, I'm instructed that I have to say that Dr. McMasters has nothing to disclose. Um, he's not receiving any direct payments and does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of product or devices related to this talk. For all of you who are seeking CME, the code will be available um, posted on a sign outside the door on your way out. It's the technical stuff that I always forget and I get in trouble for. So um, it's my pleasure to introduce um, Kelly McMasters. He is the Ben A. Reed Senior um, Professor and Chair of Surgery at the University of Louisville. He's a graduate of Colgate University and of Rutgers University for his MD, PhD. He actually trained at the University of Louisville and then um, took a short hiatus down to Houston to do his surgical oncology fellowship at MD Anderson, where he and Steve Leach got into all sorts of um, trouble and made all sorts of um, fine advances in surgical oncology. And I think I almost had to arm wrestle Steve to have honor, the honor of giving this introduction. Um, so. Um, so I'm pleased to do that. After he completed his fellowship at MD Anderson, he was recruited back to the University of Louisville, where he's been for the entirety of his career. He rose through the ranks really quickly and uh, became chair there in um, 2005. I had the pleasure of being a trainee at the University of Lowell and um, know Kelly very well from uh, my treasured time there. I consider him a mentor and a friend and a colleague. So thank you very much um, for everything that you've meant to me in my career. And um, I think the topic that he's going to talk about today is something that he's spent his lifetime um, investigating. He has, um, if you include everything um, publications-wise, has about 500 um, publications, book chapters, et cetera, to his name, and probably more than that because I stopped reading um, after um, that line. He's a leader in um, American surgery and in um, clinical oncology. He's literally been the president of so many surgical societies and will probably have many more to his credit. He's been the president of the Western Surgical, the Southern Surgical, um, the Society of Surgical Oncology, the Southeastern Surgical. Um, am I forgetting any? Probably. Um, a couple of more. Um, but I think importantly, um, and I think his contribution um, is it, the advancement of um, surgical care and the advancement of um, oncology care. He's done so much in terms of basic science research and in terms of clinical trials. Um, he was the leader of the Sunbent Melanoma Trial, which um, really was one of the first kind of trials to look at sentinel lymph node biopsy. Um, in melanoma, and in addition to that, has done so much work in terms of sentinel lymph node biopsy and breast cancer as well. And all of us know of that as a very common standard of care thing now, but I think back in the day it was really kind of new and experimental, and I think Dr. McMaster's contributed so much to the advancement of that field. So um, I could go on and on, but I won't, because I think we're all just here to learn about melanoma and hear how it's not just for surgeons anymore. So welcome and thank you. Thank you, uh, Sandra. This has been a reunion for me and uh, with uh, 
Steve Leach, and we won't tell any of those stories. Uh, and Sandra, it seems like just yesterday, I would torture her every holiday when she tried to take a few days off with writing an abstract or a paper on some deadline or another, it seemed like every, every other day. Uh, and to watch her career and Steve's be so successful and uh, to uh, uh, then come to Dartmouth and see a couple of our medical students who are thriving under your mentorship. It's all paying itself forward. And what a, a tremendous honor and pleasure to meet Marjorie Long today and to be asked to give the Caner lecture, uh, uh, my new best friend uh, here. And, and uh, we had a, a nice discussion earlier today. And uh, I'm truly honored to be here and be able to talk about uh, melanoma, an area that I've uh, been interested in for, for some time. Uh, I didn't plan on being a melanoma surgeon when I finished my fellowship, but I always tell people to uh, keep your options open. You never know uh, what's going to come your way, and opportunities arise, and you have to be prepared for them. So melanoma was really the last of the great surgical uh, diseases in surgical oncology. It was just a few years ago that the late Dr. Donald Morton, the man who invented sentinel lymph node biopsy, would show up at national meetings and he would say the best treatment for melanoma at every stage of disease is surgery, surgery, and more surgery. He'd pound his fist just like that. He was about six foot six and a big imposing man. And everybody believed him. And at the time, he was probably right. We all know melanomas can prevent, present in a variety of shapes and sizes. And for those of you who may be medical students in the audience, uh, anybody can diagnose one of these things that looks like melanoma. But uh, beware of the amelanotic melanomas, the ones that show up uh, that don't look like the wanted posters of melanoma, because we see those all the time. Anything that's changing uh, needs to be biopsied. So when we get a diagnosis of melanoma, every patient who comes in the office is scared to death. They have melanoma in situ. Somehow they come in, they think that they're going to die of melanoma, and rightfully so. Melanoma doesn't have a very good reputation. But how do we tell the good ones from the bad ones? The fact is that most melanomas are diagnosed early, and most patients are cured with a simple surgical procedure. Some of them can be bad cancers and spread to other places. Well, we can tell a whole lot from some simple things that we get on a pathology report. The thickness, Breslow thickness, thickness of the melanoma measured in millimeters, very important prognostic factor. Ulceration, we'll talk about that a little bit, whether the melanoma is ulcerated or not is very important. Ulceration, ulcerated melanomas pound for pound are always worse than non-ulcerated melanomas. And then the status of the regional lymph nodes, whether there's cancer in the lymph nodes, and if so, how much cancer is in the lymph nodes. Other factors have some influence, but thickness, Ulceration, lymph node status, those three things need to be in every patient note and the things that you're going to consider uh, that are going to drive your treatment decisions. So this shows your survival based upon Breslow thickness. The thin melanomas, less than a millimeter thick is an early melanoma. Thin melanoma, they do well. Thick melanomas over four millimeters thick don't do as well. And the intermediate thickness ones are somewhere in the middle in terms of survival. Ulceration, what is that? It's defined by the pathologist as the absence of an intact epithelium overlying the melanoma. And you see that here. Uh, it was first described by Dr. Charles Balch, who's one of the uh, godfathers of the field of melanoma. And ulcerated melanomas, pound for pound, are always worse than non-ulcerated melanomas. Disease-free survival, overall survival, no negative patients, Ulcerated melanoma is always worse than non-ulcerated melanomas. I thought that by the time you got a positive lymph node, ulceration probably didn't mean very much, but node-positive melanomas, ulcerated, always worse than non-ulcerated melanomas. So always look for ulceration. If it's not in the pathology report, that, that needs to be included. And then lymph node status, and lymph node status now determined by sentinel lymph node biopsy for the last 20 years or more, 
in this study with, uh, is, a, is a really seminal uh, work by uh, Merrick Ross and Jeff Gershenwald from MD Anderson, really established that of all these prognostic factors, if you have a positive sentinel lymph node with a hazard ratio of 6.5, uh, there's a really important prognostic factor. You're six and a half times more likely to die of your cancer than if you had a negative lymph node. Important information to know that we can get with a minimally invasive procedure. So we know that patients with a positive lymph node do worse in green, do worse than those with a negative sentinel node in terms of disease-free and overall survival. But who needs to have this sentinel lymph node biopsy procedure? We inject a blue dye and radioactive tracer that travel through the lymphatic system to the first draining or sentinel node. If the cancer is going to be anywhere, that's where you're going to find it. It's the first lymph node the cancer would spread to if it's going to spread anywhere. So which patients need to have this procedure? Which ones have favorable melanomas for which you don't need to do this procedure? It's a difference often between general anesthesia and just a wide excision under local anesthesia. And I think that uh, around the country, around the world, we greatly over-utilize this procedure to stage melanomas that have a very favorable prognosis. So I think we need to be selective about who has sentinel node biopsy. This is a, uh, some work that was presented uh, at the Southern Surgical by uh, Michael Egger, uh, uh, where we looked and really trying to define uh, which early melanoma patients should have a sentinel node biopsy or not. Because the staging system has changed. Now, staging uh, uses technology in general that is somewhere between 400 to thousands of years old. What the physician can, uh, uh, can feel with his or her fingers, what the pathologist can see under the microscope. And staging doesn't always meet our modern needs for discriminating prognosis and determining treatment uh, because... Uh, there are other factors that we need to take into account. The new staging system here changed, and they change this every few years just to confuse everybody, uh, classified the T1 melanomas, the early thin melanomas, less than a millimeter thick. Uh, first of all, we're, we, we quit doing hundredths of a millimeter, which we've always used. So instead of 0 0.75, we now round up. 0 0.75 is now 0.8. So we use whole energies. I have no idea on earth why we did this. Uh, it makes no sense to me. But um, And now, previously included was mitotic rate. So that doesn't sound like a big difference of a mitotic rate of zero per square millimeter versus one per square millimeter. But there's a lot of evidence in melanoma that that defines thin melanomas that are mitotically active versus inactive and those that had a higher propensity for spread to lymph nodes or elsewhere. Yet, mitotic rate is no longer in the staging system. It's based solely on the thickness and ulceration. Why did they make these changes? Why did they... How, what is the staging system based upon? Staging system is not based on the likelihood that you're going to find a positive lymph node or how you're going to treat the patient. The staging system is meant to predict overall survival. So here's the big difference that defining T1A versus T1B in the way that they did makes. That's the green line here and the red line there. 98% 10-year survival versus 96% 10-year survival. That's the reason that the classification is there and that mitotic rate was dropped. So staging is based on survival. Uh, and, and the problem is that now people will use T1B as a category for doing sentinel, as an indication to perform a sentinel lymph node biopsy. It's suggested in a lot of the literature. And so a lot of these patients that previously we used mitotic rate as an indicator uh, will uh, be getting unnecessary sentinel node biopsies in, at least that's what we uh, considered. So before you roll your eyes and say this is a National Cancer Database, NCDB study, one of these big database studies for which everything is statistically significant and rarely clinically important, I think this is actually the appropriate tool where we get enough data to try and answer this uh, question. 
We looked at the non-ulcerated T1B melanomas in the new staging system. Why non-ulcerated? Because every ulcerated melanoma, as I just told you, is at higher risk, and everybody's going to do sentinel node biopsy for ulcerated thin melanomas. <laughs> there are precious few ulcerated thin melanomas to start with. But this is really where the, the uh, confusion lies in this group of patients. If you're doing a lot of sentinel node biopsies for patients with melanomas less than 0.75, you are really overutilizing the procedure in a group of patients with a 98% 10-year survival rate. So we went through the whole thing here. I'm not going to go through all the numbers. You see how it sorted out. We had nearly 7,000 patients who would be T1B based upon thickness. And what did we find? We looked at a variety of different factors. Younger patients had a higher rate of positive sentinel nodes. We des described this back when you were in the lab uh, uh, and others, that older patients have a much lower risk of positive lymph nodes. Why? We haven't exactly figured out. There are some hypotheses. So it goes from 85 to 3.7%. In the relative tumor thickness categories, 0 0.8, 0 0.9, and 1 in the new staging system, uh, the rate of positive sentinel nodes increases by thickness. Uh, unlike in most things, in this case, women did worse than men um, in terms of uh, positive sentinel nodes. Mitotic rate, there's a big difference still between the positive uh, sentinel nodes and those with a mitotic rate of one or more versus those with a mitotic rate of zero. Lymphovascular invasion, you hardly ever see that in thin melanomas, but it was significant. Here you see, as you get older, the risk of positive sentinel nodes in this group of patients with T1B melanomas goes down pretty dramatically. As the thickness increases within this 0.8 to 1 category, so does the risk of positive sentinel nodes. The commonly accepted criterion for when you do a sentinel node biopsy is when the risk of a positive lymph node is 5% or more. You can see there are a lot of patients who are below the 5% threshold. In a multivariate model, uh, you see age, thickness, uh, sex, and mitotic rate all come out as significant, and this is what happens in uh, this CART analysis. We can define 55% of patients in the new T1B category. These are patients where T1B in the staging system is being used across the country for people to say, hey, you have a T1B melanoma, you need to have a sentinel node biopsy. 55% clearly do not need to have a sentinel node biopsy. That is, they have a mitotic rate of zero, or if they have a mitotic rate of one or more, uh, for patients older than 56 in the 0.8 to 9 category. Those, those are low-risk patients. Uh, and the ones who need a sentinel node biopsy are really those with mitotic rate of 1 or more. Uh, in the older patients, it's only in the 1-millimeter-thick category. If they're 0.8 or 0.9, they're over here, low-risk. Uh, younger patients, if you have my, one mitosis or more, uh, they all deserve to have a, have a sentinel node biopsy performed in our estimation. So this is one model, one study. It deserves further study. I think we can clearly look at uh, ways to reduce the number of sentinel node biopsies performed for patients with very favorable melanomas. And when we say that their lymph nodes are positive, we haven't even gotten to the next uh, point. Uh, well, I'll skip over that. We just talked about it. Are all positive lymph nodes the same? Many of these patients with early melanomas, if you say they have a positive lymph node, they have a few isolated tumor cells, subcapsular focus of abnormal cells. That is much different when you have a one centimeter focus of disease in the lymph node. So uh, this is what Mike Egger did when he was in the lab. One of the projects he worked on was in the Sunbelt Melanoma trial that Sandra talked about, and I'll show you a little bit from that uh, later, we w didn't have the foresight when we uh, wrote the study 20-something uh, years ago to capture data on the size of the nodal metastasis because a positive lymph node was a positive lymph node. We didn't know that it made a difference the whether the size of the nodal metastasis was uh, very small or, or larger. 
And so he went back and flew around the country and worked with pathologists to measure nodal metastases and a bunch of patients from the study. And I'm going to summarize a bunch of analysis here. There are a whole bunch of different ways you can uh, decide about the metastatic tumor burden within the sentinel node. Some people measure the maximum diameter of the largest focus of disease. Simple enough. Some people propose looking at the maximum cross-sectional area of the largest focus of disease. Some people look at the STARS classification, which is defined as the distance from the internal capsule of the lymph node to the deepest portion of the metastasis within the lymph node. Some people look at Dewar's classification, whether the metastasis is subcapsular or medullary or a combination of both. All these different um, proposed systems for categorizing micrometastatic tumor burden in the lymph node have been studied. When we put it to the test, again summarizing for you, turns out that maximum tumor diameter is not only the simplest measure, it's also the most reliable and the best measure of doing this. So in our study, you can see less than one millimeter focus of disease. In red, this is disease-free and overall survival. The patients have a better prognosis than those who have more than a three millimeter focus of disease, which seems to be a lot worse. Um, and then, of course, we didn't have a lot of patients with less than 0.1, but the Rotterdam criteria based upon uh, uh, a bunch of work that's been done uh, in the Netherlands and uh, in EORTC studies, less than 0.1 millimeters is probably not very clinically significant in most patients. So if you have point, less than 0.1, it's, uh, you have a small chance, about 7% chance that you're going to die of melanoma, but it's not very high. And most people would not consider that to be in the same category as somebody with a truly positive sentinel node. When you look at this, I've, for years, patients would come in, they'd get a sentinel node biopsy and a wide excision of melanoma. We'd find a quote-unquote positive lymph node, and then they were stage 3. Cancer and lymph nodes, stage 3. Stage 3 melanoma, what's that mean? That means you go to the medical oncologist and talk about adjuvant therapy options. But stage three is a terrible way. Just saying the patient has a positive lymph node, their stage three is a terrible way of deciding who's at high risk or low risk. Because if you look at the range of prognoses within patients with melanoma, it, let's just look at the sentinel node positive patients here. Overall, if you have a positive sentinel node, your five-year survival rate is 66%. Most of the patients are cured, and, and, they, and, and most of them will be alive and well if followed long-term forever. Um, Two-thirds of the patients are cured just by, and these all patients all had a completion lymph node section, by the way, but two-thirds of them don't need any adjuvant therapy because they're cured just by surgery. Of course, you can't tell which ones are going to recur and which ones are not. So uh, if you look at other factors, there's a high-risk group of patients we can define with a 14% five-year survival rate based upon thickness, ulceration, and other factors. We can define a low-risk group with an 85% five-year survival rate. These are all patients who were, set, who were told they have a positive lymph node, positive sentinel node. So positive isn't positive. There are grades of tumor burden that have significance in combination with thickness and ulceration that inform our decisions about the patient's prognosis, that should inform our decisions about the patient's risk of dying of cancer and whether or not they should be considered for adjuvant therapy. So other models beyond the staging system have been developed. Um, this is one that we developed uh, at melanomacalculator.com. you got a free app you can get at the App Store on your iPhone or Android device, and I use this in the clinic all the time. It's for sentinel node for staged patients, and it gives us some idea of what's a patient's risk of recurrence. These days it helps me make decisions about follow-up plan, whether to use imaging or not, and it also gives us an idea about their risk of recurrence and death from melanoma so we can make decisions about adjuvant therapy. It outperforms the AJCC model, which is also available online. There's a model from Boston that's available online. I don't care what model you want to use the staging system. I don't care which model you use. I just think you should be thoughtful about assessing risk 
and assessing the uh, likelihood of recurrence and the, the uh, potential benefit of adjuvant therapy. Of course, I like our model. Our model would be better <laughs> if it included nodal tumor burden, and we're trying to get enough data to be able to do that. That would really refine it a great deal. But it doesn't include that now. And it was also based on a time when, when we did completion lymph node dissection for everybody, and that needs to now be taken into account. So we, need, we have a whole bunch of work to, re, to redo this. There you go. There's the free app. Go away. <laughs> so, you know, you can see an example of the readout you put in age, uh, gender, anatomic location, thickness, ulceration, sentinel node status, number of positive sentinel nodes, and any positive non-sentinel nodes, which you can make assumptions yes or no these days if you didn't do a completion lymph node section. And you'll get a readout here for overall survival, disease-free survival, and local and in-transit recurrence-free survival. Our models, in some cases, significantly varies from AJCC, uh, but it's been validated and looked at uh, pretty closely. Uh, There's a paper from Memorial where they looked at the three available models and said, well, they don't all always agree with each other. But that's really not the point. No model is ever perfect. It's a tool. It's not to be used in isolation. And uh, all of them are better than using the staging system alone for predicting prognosis. <coughs> It would be even more valuable if we had other tests that could help inform us about prognosis, and there, uh, such as a gene expression profile. There is a test that is available. It's being marketed and sold. And I'm not exactly sure what to do with the test. We did some early clinical trials with them. Uh, it's a gene expression profile developed in silico, quote-unquote. I didn't know what that meant, so I had to look it up. That meant they just went to the literature and picked some uh, genes that they thought might be involved in predicting prognosis for melanoma, and they put them together in a gene signature, and it, and it worked somehow. Um, that's never worked in my lab for the past 20 years. Uh, well, the hard work of, of doing gene expression profiling and trying to uh, find biomarkers that are significant. They got lucky, or well, I don't know how they did it, but the problem is every study they do, the results look like this. There's a huge dis difference between the patients defined as low risk in their, um, in their gene signature and those defined as high risk. They have a uveal melanoma uh, a signature that's been used for some time that is very significant. Um, so how do we use this test? Now, what I can tell you is it's being marketed and sold, uh, marketed for every dermatologist, and the patients often come with a report in hand. We did a bunch of studies with them, and I'm not really sure how to use the data right now, but I think it could be important, like we use uh, gene expression profiles and other biomarkers in other diseases to help make patient decisions. Uh, it's just that we quite don't know what to do with the test. What I do know is they're trying to t sell it as a way to tell you whether you should perform a sentinel lymph node biopsy now, and in, in my judgment, the data are not validated to tell patients that they do or do not need to have a sentinel node biopsy, but it can inform your decisions about risk. I worry about using it for patients that any test can tell you the patients that are at very high risk, the, the ulcerated thick melanomas, uh, or, or at very low risk, the T1A melanomas. Uh, any profile will perform extremely well at predicting high and low risk, but um, uh, it's the, the patients where the decision really matters, T1B, T2 patients, where you're making a decision, do a sentinel node biopsy or not, uh, or uh, do I need to follow them more closely or not, do they need imaging? Uh, those are decisions that I'm not sure we have the answers to for this particular test. What we started to do is more personalized follow-up for years in melanoma because before about five years ago, if you were the melanoma oncologist, you had the most depressing job on earth and because you were giving treatments to patients that you knew did not work, that were futile, that had toxicity, and you're trying to put a happy face on it. Um, and now it's been revolutionized, where melanoma oncologist is the, is the most exciting job in the world of oncology. At least I think it is. I'm sure others think there are other exciting areas, but because we now have treatments that work uh, that aren't 
uh, horrendously toxic. So in the past, it made no sense at all to follow the patients very closely to find if they had an asymptomatic lung metastasis or other evidence of recurrence because we had no effective treatments, really. So we didn't do scans. We didn't do CT scans or MRIs or PET scans. Uh, we just did clinical follow-up. Patients came back to the office, did a history and physical exam, and we didn't do any imaging. In many places, that's still the way we do things. Um, now, I think, because there's evidence that we have effective treatment, even for patients with stage 4 disease, potentially curative immunotherapy, I think it makes, and, and there is good evidence that the patients who respond best to treatment are the ones with the lowest tumor burden. I think it makes sense to try and find some of those patients before they come in with brain metastases and lung metastases, et cetera. So the higher risk patients probably deserve, like every other cancer on earth, to be followed with imaging. CT scans every six months for the high risk patients. Where do you draw the line? We draw the line at 25% high or higher, more than 25% risk of recurrence will image the patients and follow them. Now, do you make that determination based upon your risk model? Make that determination based upon your gene expression profile, if you want to use that test, or a combination of both? Is 25% too high, too low? I don't know. You have to figure it out what strategy works best for you. But I don't think it's appropriate anymore to say no melanoma patients should be imaged, and it doesn't make sense to say all melanoma patients should have imaging. I mean, why do we follow pancreatic cancer patients with CT and patients with cholangiocarcinoma and gastric cancer to get CT scans every three months so that if they recur early and have asymptomatic recurrence, what potentially curative treatments do we have for them? Well, we, we really don't. Melanoma, we have patients with durable, complete responses to immunotherapy these days, a uh, significant fraction of patients that are potentially, we, like, we hate to use the C word in, in cancer, but these are patients who are cured of their cancer. Jimmy Carter, remember Jimmy Carter, the, the president back before most of you were born when we had 20% inflation and gas rationing and, and he had melanoma in his brain and his lungs and everywhere else. He wasn't going to live a month. He got a PD-1 inhibitor and he's going to die of old age and not from melanoma. He had a durable, complete response. Sounds like a miracle. And we see that miracle happen day in and day out in the melanoma clinic these days. It truly is remarkable. I find myself in the unenviable position of having argued for the past few years since we've had effective immunotherapy, arguing with the medical oncologists to give systemic therapy up front to patients with palpable nodal disease and resectable <laughs> stage 4 melanoma. They would argue with me that I should perform surgery because this is standard of care to resect resectable stage 4 melanoma or to perform a lymph node dissection for patients with palpable disease. Now we've all gotten on the same page because I give them a chance to make it go away before I have to with surgery. Well, let's ask some other questions about melanoma. Does sentinel lymph node biopsy improve survival? This is this, the multicenter selective lymphadenectomy trial one by Dr. Morton. This is a big study that uh, we participated in. Uh, a simple study, wide excision alone versus wide excision with a sentinel node biopsy to determine whether or not patients had improved survival by doing a sentinel node biopsy. Of course, the sentinel node biopsy positive patients got a lymph node dissection in this study. And at the time, adjuvant therapy was, was uh, interferon or nothing, and many of them got nothing. Well, what did this show us? Disease-free survival was better in the patients with a, positive, uh, with a sentinel node biopsy because it, sentinel node biopsy and completion lymph node dissection does prevent some nodal recurrences. If you look at overall survival, whether it's in intermediate thickness melanomas or thick melanomas, there's absolutely no difference in survival, whether the patients had a sentinel node biopsy or not. So the best evidence we have from this large randomized trial, you can't say that doing a sentinel node biopsy improves survival. Next question that Dr. Morton wanted to answer was, well, if we find a positive sentinel node, do all those patients need to have a completion lymph node dissection, neck dissection, axillary dissection, groin dissection, and the attendant complications like lymphedema in half of the patients who have a groin dissection, at least half the patients get chronic swelling. Only about 15 to 16% of the patients, when you have a positive sentinel node, then you go back and complete the lymph node dissection, only about 15 or 16% of those patients have 
additional positive non-Sentinel nodes. Only 15% of the patients could possibly benefit from doing a lymph node dissection, but all of them get the potential complications. So the question was, could we just do a sentinel node biopsy if the lymph node's positive? Well, watch those patients closely with ultrasound, with physical examination, <coughs> and if they develop clinically detected nodal disease later, we can do a lymph node dissection later. Does that impact survival? Is, that, is, it, is survival equivalent? Um, so there were two studies. One's the DCOG German uh, study looking at uh, patients with uh, truncal and extremity melanomas, lymph node ultrasound every three months, body imaging every six months, randomized patients to observation versus complete, completion lymph node dissection if you had a positive sentinel node. Well, these uh, disease-free survival curves are superimposable. No difference in disease-free uh, survival. No difference in overall survival. Absolutely the same. So it looks like completion lymph node dissection did not improve disease-free overall survival. So what do we do when we see results of studies that disagree with our dogma? We criticize them. Can't, that can't be true. This is a small study. It was underpowered to detect small differences. What small difference are you going to detect here? You can only <laughs> increasing the sample size isn't going to make these curves separate, right? Um, okay. Um, this is patients with low uh, nodal tumor burden. Uh, these are people with small nodal metastases, and it would make a bigger difference. Uh, here's the difference in regional nodal recurrence: three percent versus seven percent. Not different. So those are the only recurrences you could prevent with a lymph node dissection. Maybe 4% of the patients might have had a benefit. Well, what's the other criticism? Well, it, it only benefits patients with larger uh, nodal metastases, those at higher risk. Well, this is patients with lymph node metastases less than or equal to a millimeter in diameter, no difference in survival. What about those with metastases greater than a millimeter in survival? No difference. In fact, the proportion of patients with Small metastases less than one millimeter is about the same as in other studies. So this is not a highly selected group of patients with minimal nodal burden. Okay, MSLT2. Uh, Dr. Morton's uh, last study, he never got to see the study published before he died, uh, but uh, he was a huge influence on all of us in the field of melanoma. And... He randomized patients again to a completion lymph node dissection or nodal observation using ultrasound. I will draw your attention to the results of this study, ignoring what's up here in yellow and green, if that's green. Um, just look at the red and blue lines. This is PCR staged um, patients, and it had no clinical significance, just like we found in the Sunbelt Melanoma trial uh, that we did. Um, so you don't need to bother with that. But uh, here's the results. No, uh, there's a difference in disease-free survival uh, favoring patients who had a completion lymph node dissection because, again, if you do a completion lymph node dissection, that does prevent some nodal recurrences. Okay. Distant metastasis-free survival, no difference. Melanoma-specific survival, absolutely no difference. In fact, numerically, the observation patients are, are on top here. So doing a completion lymph node dissection did not improve survival compared to a strategy of close observation. Two studies now show the same thing. We considered this to be practice changing. I haven't done completion lymph node dissections for uh, a few years, and uh, I think it uh, definitely you can avoid doing a completion lymph node dissection if you can follow the patients closely. Are there times when you should perform a completion lymph node dissection? It still intrigues me that around the country, around the world, I see uh, melanoma surgeons who cling to the opportunity to perform completion lymph node dissections on everybody with a positive sentinel node. Uh, you can if you want to, uh, but uh, you certainly, there is good evidence to say that it is safe not to perform completion lymph node dissection for patients with positive sentinel nodes, if you can follow them appropriately. 
What about adjuvant therapy in melanoma? Adjuvant therapy is all about weighing the risks and the benefits, as well as the risk of recurrence and death from melanoma, and then weighing the toxicity and the benefit of the treatment. So I'll summarize the history of adjuvant therapy for melanoma here quickly. High-dose interferon, apilimumab, PD-1 inhibitors, and BRAF and MEK inhibitors. High-dose interferon was always controversial, and uh, we could talk at length like I used to about why interferon was not a very good adjuvant therapy, but suffice it to say, there was a pretty consistent improvement in disease-free survival. It prolonged the time to recurrence, and it may have a bigger effect in patients with ulcerated melanomas, some work from the EORTC and from our uh, study. Why, we don't know. But the fact is, it never had a very convincing improvement in overall survival. It's very toxic, a lot of side effects, like having the flu only worse for a year, and if it doesn't improve survival, uh, that's all we had for many years. Uh, many of us didn't use it anyway because it wasn't any good. Uh, from the very earliest studies of melanoma and interferon, stage three melanoma has changed dramatically because we didn't used to have sentinel node biopsy. This is what we found when we had positive lymph nodes, big, bulky, palpable lymph nodes full of cancer. Then this is what we were seeing day in and day out, one little speck of cancer in a sentinel node, a single positive node. So back 20-some uh, years ago, we asked a question in the Sunbelt Melanoma trial, and I'll, I told you already that this, this whole part over here in green is where we used PCR staging to be able, with uh, that state-of-the-art technology southern blot detection at the time, believe it or not, um, to try and find the state high-risk stage 1 and 2 patients who had evidence of, of uh, melanoma cells in their sentinel nodes and circulating bloodstream uh, that would be at higher risk. The same thing we're trying to find today, who were the high-risk stage 1 and 2 patients. Uh, it was not significant, just like the MSLT2 study found. Um, MSLT1 study found. But in this study, we randomized patients with a histologically positive sentinel node, one positive lymph node, to observation versus interferon. To answer the question, if interferon was, maybe it was more effective in patients with minimal nodal tumor burden, or maybe it didn't wasn't necessary. Well, we found that there was no difference in survival with interferon for patients with a single positive lymph node. Um, we found the PCR testing didn't work, as I said. But it was interesting at the time. You can see there's a big difference if you look at all these arms of the study together. Arm 3 is those who have more than one positive lymph node. If you have more than one positive lymph node, sentinel or non-sentinel, it is much worse than having just one. So it's an important thing to remember. Even two lymph nodes with small a burden of tumor in the lymph node, it's worse than having one lymph node with more cancer in it. These are all sentinel node negative patients, stayed with PCR. These are single positive sentinel node patients. Again, these patients have a five-year survival rate in the approaching 70%. Interferon was toxic, expensive, marginally effective, and nobody uses it anymore. In other places, sometimes it's used for ulcerated melanomas only because there's some evidence that that may be the patients who benefit. This is the landscape of systemic therapy for melanoma just five years ago. We had DTIC, decarbazine, or temozolomide, it's temozolomide, its cousin, with a 15, 15% response rate if you had systemic disease. No improvement in survival, futile therapy, we knew it, and it didn't help. Other cytotoxic chemotherapy regimens with greater toxicity and no greater efficacy. High-dose interleukin-2, septic shock without the infection, patients in the ICU, maybe two patients out of 100 would have a complete response that was durable. Tough treatment for very little benefit. And then my favorite, biochemotherapy. When I was in fellowship, this is all the rage. 
We can give five nasty drugs all together, three nasty cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs. We'll give interferon and interleukin, too. We'll throw the kitchen sink at them. These patients are really sick, really a ton of toxicity. At the end of it, a couple of them had durable, complete responses out of 100. Uh, no overall survival benefit. Horrendous toxicity, very little benefit. Melanoma was resistant to chemotherapy, resistant to radiation therapy in general, in many cases, and we had no good systemic therapies. Now, when I told you before that the melanoma medical oncologist was the most depressed person in, in the whole medical school. It was, if you actually spend a little time thinking about this, you realize that we weren't doing a whole lot of good. This is what's happened in the last few years. Look at all these drugs that have been approved. BRAF and MEK inhibitors, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, ipilimumab, pembrolizumab, nivolumab, and now even a gene therapy. Um, I'm going to talk about these in the adjuvant setting to some degree, as time permits. Uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, this is a CTLA-4 uh, antibody, ipilimumab, and uh, in the adjuvant therapy studies, you can see ipilimumab was better than placebo at improving overall survival. This is the first convincing evidence of an overall survival benefit for an adjuvant therapy in melanoma, as interferon had been controversial with conflicting study results for years. So that sounds great, right? We should give everybody this new CTLA-4 inhibitor. There's, there's, that was uh, recurrence-free survival, overall survival. Separated curves. The problem is toxicity unacceptable pro, uh, toxicity profile. Some patients die. The side effects are autoimmune side effects, autoimmune colitis. Uh, this is a common scenario. Uh, patients on the weekend, they go to their outlying hospital emergency room with abdominal pain, maybe some diarrhea, maybe some bloody diarrhea. Well, they get diagnosed with diverticulitis. They get put on antibiotics, and by the next day, they've perforated their colon and they're dead. When they had autoimmune colitis, which nobody really had thought about much, before all these new drugs, and uh, they needed high-dose steroids, and they would have been cured, would have been fixed right away. So I don't care what field of medicine you're in, now you see these drugs advertised on TV all the time. And ipilimumab is, is, has much more autoimmune toxicity than the PD-1 inhibitors. But nevertheless, if you're on immune checkpoint inhibitors, patients are on those treatments, and they have anything wrong with them, you need to be thinking, do they need steroids? Do they need to call their oncologist? Uh, is it autoimmune-itis of any kind, from hypophysitis to colitis to carditis, pneumonitis, thyroiditis? You pick an itis, and it can be caused by these drugs. It doesn't happen very often for the PD-1 inhibitors. It does happen for the CTLA-4 inhibitors. <coughs> this is a PD-1 inhibitor, programmed cell death 1. There are two drugs, they do exactly the same thing. There's no reason to think one is any better than the other. But nivolumab, compared to ipilimumab in the adjuvant setting for stage 3 patients and stage 4 resected patients, improves survival. Better results, less toxicity. Here's the difference. Jason Chesney, my uh, head of the cancer center at our place, here's what he tells me and tells the patients. If you're on, a, on ipilimumab, every one of those patients has his cell phone number to call if something's wrong bad autoimmune toxicity. If you're on a PD-1 inhibitor, they get the office number. Because <laughs> it's much less likely they're going to have a serious problem. They all know about the potential side effects and what to do. Pembrolizumab uh, in the adjuvant setting as well, compared to placebo, uh, another PD-1 inhibitor. Now we have real adjuvant therapies that seem to have these kind of uh, remarkable responses compared to what we ever saw in melanoma before. What about targeted therapy based upon the BRAF oncogene? Half of the melanomas have a uh, mutation in uh, the BRAF oncogene, an activating mutation, V600E, the most common. And downstream of BRAF is the MEC uh, gene uh, in this pathway, signaling pathway. So BRAF inhibitors alone had some effect. Adding BRAF and MEK inhibitors had a bigger effect in the metastatic setting. So now you can look in the adjuvant setting 
you can see that um, a BRAF MEK inhibitor compared to placebo, there's a big difference. In, in medical oncology, you know, a hazard ratio of 0.75, 25% reduction in relative risk of death, is a big effect. And that's a common adjuvant therapy uh, kind of effect. This is 0.47, more than 50% reduction in relative risk of dying of melanoma. That's pretty impressive for a pill, two pills, the patients take, as opposed to the five nasty chemotherapy drugs in the ICU. It's really remarkable. The problem that we see in the metastatic setting for patients with receiving targeted therapy is that the tumor becomes resistant to the targeted therapy. The cancer is always smarter than one or two targets. And all of a sudden, the patients rebound with an explosion of their disease. After a year on average now, it was six months when all we did was BRAF inhibition. The concern, as opposed to the curves that appeared to be remaining separated with immunotherapy, is that this may, these curves may converge over time, similar to what we saw in the metastatic disease setting with the use of BRAF MEK inhibitors. Uh, we need further time, further studies. We'll be able to, to define that further. But there is a big difference uh, using this as a targeted therapy. Our preference in most pla many places is to use immunotherapy as the preferred adjuvant therapy. There is significant side effects of this treatment. It's not a free lunch. So in summary, uh, you know, nobody uses interferon or ipilimumab very much anymore. Uh, PD-1 inhibitor is pretty low toxicity. Most patients walk around like they're not getting anything, a little fatigue, sometimes rash. They can have bad side effects and need to be aware, but it's on the scale of adjuvant therapy, risk and benefit, toxicity and benefit, uh, I think it's uh, worlds away from where we've been. Uh, BRAF and MEK inhibitors can be effective. Uh, I think the availability of safe adjuvant therapy makes not doing a completion lymph node dissection easier if the patient's going to get uh, systemic therapy and adjuvant therapy. And neoadjuvant strategies are under investigation. We commonly use neoadjuvant approaches for patients with palpable nodal disease and resectable stage 4 disease these days. Uh, just a quick word about uh, another type of therapy that's on the list that's available uh, for patients with in-transit disease. This is melanoma recurrence in the skin and under the skin, intralymphatic recurrence called in-transit recurrence. Uh, this is melanoma that this is a patient who is refractory to all of our best therapies in the past. We used to do hyperthermic isolated limb perfusions, pump hot chemotherapy through the extremity for an hour. And that worked for some people, but most of them, the cancer came back. We used intralesional therapy with a variety of things. Now, this is a, this is a gene therapy. Uh, we call it TV. You can read what the name actually means if you want to pronounce it all the way yourself. Nobody does. So we just call it TVEC. And uh, this is a, a herpes virus vector that expresses GMCSF injected right into the tumor. And you have a tremendous uh, number of patients who have a response to this treatment, some of them complete responses to therapy. By itself, it has very modest effect on systemic disease. But uh, we participated as the largest participant in the randomized trial that we don't have the results yet uh, of TVEC with uh, pembrolizumab, which is pembrolizumab alone, um, and got a lot of experience with this combination and have, uh, let's just say, um, a high opinion of the likelihood that it's going to be valuable. And uh, until we have further evidence, it's, it's a common combination that we use uh, and have had an enormous number of patients with durable, complete Responses. I think priming with the uh, TVEC, GMCSF, gene therapy, oncolytic virus vector, uh, and uh, PD-1 inhibition has been a potent uh, strategy. Whether it's any better than using a PD-1 inhibitor alone, I can't tell you for sure yet, uh, but it's our suspicion. So in summary, sentinel node biopsy is an excellent staging procedure that doesn't improve survival all by itself. Uh, it's an excellent procedure for regional lymph node disease control. You don't need to perform a completion lymph node dissection if you don't want to. Some people still want to. I, I tell them, go ahead. You talk to the patients about it and go ahead, but you really don't need to. Uh, personalized 
follow-up strategies, I think, make sense because we have treatments for patients with metastatic disease if detected early. So I'm pretty clear that the Dr. Morton would be proud to look down upon the field of melanoma these days, see his and others' contributions, and come to the conclusion that melanoma isn't just for surgeons anymore. Uh, thank you so much for the honor of the invitation to be the uh, candidate lecturer this year. great review, and um, I think we have a pretty multidisciplinary crowd today. Um, we'll open up for questions. Yes, ma'am. Um, now in the setting of immunotherapy, do you think what we might find is that more lymphodissection may be detrimental to the patient, whereas that may be where a lot of the cells reside that need to be activated by immunotherapy? That's certainly one uh, uh, theory that in order to get an optimal immune response, you need to have some antigen to be presented to actually be detected, and so it's possible. Lymph nodes, do you ever wonder, when I look at these pictures of one little speck of, lymph, of melanoma hiding within a sea of hundreds of millions of lymphocytes and antigen-presenting cells, a lymph node, the one organ most uniquely designed to detect and destroy it, how is it doing that? And so we have some other studies underway to try and uh, understand. There's clearly some uh, immunosuppression that's going on that allows the immune system, that melanoma, to avoid immune detection and destruction. Uh, so we have some very interesting data from doing a lot of immunophenotyping, gene expression profiling, and other things on sentinel nodes that I hope will uh, help us uh, understand that a little bit better. But there are many people who, who think, like you, and I certainly do too, that we don't need to be doing completion lymph node dissections. We can give patients adjuvant therapy. And even when people come in with palpable nodal disease or recurrence, I give them the opportunity for the miracle of modern immunotherapy first. How many of them do I wind up doing a lymph node dissection for? It's, it's been absolutely amazing to me how many of them will have a complete response and are continuing in follow-up over several years now. Now, some of them will recur. Some of them will recur with systemic disease and are going to die of melanoma. They weren't going to be helped by a lymph node dissection anyway, most likely. So whether that's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, we, we don't have enough evidence to say. There's certainly a lot of people who feel that we probably shouldn't even give adjuvant PD-1 inhibitor therapy to the patients who just have a positive sentinel node, at least the lower risk ones at this point. Uh, we, it may be just as good to wait and treat those who actually have a recurrence. Most people, you know, the risk is they come in with a brain metastasis or something that's not treated, but that probably will have evidence to help guide that decision. It's very costly to give these drugs to everybody, and we can't tell with certainty the group of patients who really need them except for the prognostic work that I, and models that I talked about. It's really trying to define who's at really at high risk Who's at intermediate? Who's at low risk? Yes, sir. So your calculator doesn't have a patient who is older than 70. No. But at the same time, melanoma is disease for elderly people. You know, I do have a patient in their 70 comes to my clinic saying, you know, I'm like a baby compared to President Carter. So give me that right. <laughs> so how, how do you see, you know, like 85, 87? I tend to use anti-PD-1 first, and then if they don't respond, you know, taking the rest, combination EP-NEVO. There's some evidence that we think that the older people actually respond better to uh, PD-1 inhibitors. And so we treat a lot of people who are elderly with a PD-1 inhibitor and don't have any problem with doing so. Um, this prognostic model was based on the trial that we were giving people interferon, and nobody wanted to give interferon to patients over 70 at the time. So it, I think you can probably get uh, use 70 as the maximum cutoff and draw conclusions from there from the, the risk calculator or use one of the other models that, that are available. Uh, but we've had uh, many elderly patients who have had excellent responses and tolerate the treatment very well, as you've seen as well. Um, when you start using combination of PD-1 inhibitor and ipilimumab, 
the toxicity goes way, way, way up. It's much more difficult uh, therapy for the patients and the risk of uh, serious or even fatal autoimmune toxicity uh, escalate with the combination. But sometimes it's necessary for the high-risk patients, especially with higher tumor burden, as you, as you said, younger patients, uh, sometimes that decision is made, but it does increase toxicity. It is amazing how well most patients tolerate uh, PD-1 inhibitor as a single therapy, and I think most patients who show up with recurrent metastatic melanoma uh, deserve the opportunity for the miracle of complete response to a PD-1 inhibitor before you add combination therapy unless they have a very advanced disease, maybe it's appropriate. Yes, sir. I was really surprised to see that, I enjoyed your lecture very much, I was really surprised to see that um, women did worse with melanoma than men. That was well, that was just in that small subgroup. They had a higher risk of a positive lymph node. Across the board, whenever we look at melanoma, women, as in all areas of life, do better than men. <laughs> My wife taught me how to say these things. <laughs> I, did. I was a slow learner. <laughs> but is that true also when women go through postmenopausal women? Seems to have no, no effect. Uh, hormonal effect doesn't seem to be there. Premenopausal, postmenopausal. And almost every other, if you look at larger populations of the entire group of patients with melanoma, women, being a woman is a, 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 a good prognostic factor. Being a man is not. Dr. Masters, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Warren.